and the eensy weensy spider. And all of a sudden, the fuller brush man senses that there is somebody behind Stop. him. And can you tell me your story? Horses. <gasps> what did the horses do? Rain. We had lots of fun time walking the beach there and like touring the lighthouse. It's time for the Appleseed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. On the Appleseed, great stories can change your world. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're excited to bring you an hour of great stories today. And the tales that we've got for you today are about what happens when the natural world surprises us. Many of us have had pets at one time or another, maybe a dog that follows us on our adventures or a cat that deigns to sit in our lap after dinner or a fish we watch in the aquarium in the living room that calms our thoughts. Here at the Appleseed, we've always believed that animal stories are really human stories, and we're excited to bring you an hour of great stories today. For example, a creature from the deep sea swoons for a submarine in our original radio drama called The Crystal Whale. What is that thing? It's enormous. Some kind of creature? <laughs> Some kind of creature indeed. The Crystal Whale, an original radio drama designed, built, and polished in the Appleseeds shipyard, ready to set sail and explore the deep. That's coming up. And our first story, it's a story from Motoko. Motoko told the story to our terrific studio audience here in the Appleseed studio. And it's a story that goes back almost 300 years to China, originally found in a collection of supernatural tales and ghost stories published under the title Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. The story served as part guidebook to Beijing, part folktale, and part social critique against how peasants were taxed in the Qing dynasty. We'll dive in now with Motoko as she tells the tale of how loss and defeat become honor and success through the unusual partnership between a father and a cricket. Here's Motoko with Golden Eye of the Fighting Cricket in the Appleseed Studio. Join us. So I would like to tell you a very special story from old China. And this story is about a very special sport. It's called cricket fighting. You see, people in old China admired crickets for their beautiful singing voices and considered them to be intelligent and brave. About 1,000 years ago, during the Song Dynasty, the sport of cricket fighting began among the nobles. The emperors and rich merchants and judges, they all collected crickets that were big, strong, and quick and trained them to fight. Soon, the sport spread among the poor as well, especially because a strong, well-trained cricket was worth a lot of money. Peasants, laborers, and their children spent all their spare time looking for crickets with thick bodies, long legs, and strong chirping sounds. In battle, they use an open container with flat bottom for the battle arena. Two crickets face each other in it. The trainers would poke the crickets with pieces of straw to get them excited. Then the two insect warriors go at each other, snapping their jaws and waving their antennae. Sometimes the cricket can flip his opponent clear across the arena. Well, once upon a time, about 600 years ago, in a little village not too far from the capital city of Peking, there lived a young man named Mr. Li. Mr. Li worked as a low-ranking office clerk for the local government with no hopes for promotion. He lived with his wife in a little hut and also with their seven-year-old son, Jin. Mr. Li worked under a very mean supervisor named Mr. Bao. Mr. Bao always made Mr. Li do the most difficult or tedious job and took credit for his work. One day, Mr. Bao brought his 
uh, own fighting cricket to the office to show it off. This cricket in this special bamboo cage was nearly two inches long. You may call him Big Boss, Mr. Bao pompously told the workers. He placed the, the bamboo cage on the high shelf for everyone to admire. Well, that day during lunch, Mr. Lee was eating and talking with his colleagues when one of them asked, so what do you think about Mr. Bao's uh, fighting cricket? He's big and mean, but cowardly, just like his owner, Mr. Lee said, chewing his food. What did you say? They heard the booming voice behind them, and it was Mr. Bao. Nothing, sir. I didn't say anything, Mr. Lee stammered, his face red with embarrassment. Nothing, sir. I didn't say anything, Mr. Bao mocked. Who do you think you are, Lee, bad-mouthing me and my cricket? If you think you're such a hot shot, why don't you bring in a cricket of your own? We will have a match in two weeks, and when you lose, consider yourself fired. Well, now Mr. Lee regretted what he had said, but it was too late. His colleagues had sympathy for him, but they were also afraid to lose their jobs. Mr. Lee went home and told his wife what had happened. If I lose my job, how are we going to eat? He wailed. My dear husband, you cannot afford to lose your job, Mrs. Lee said. We must find a suitable cricket and win this fight. But dear wife, I don't know anything about training crickets. Don't worry, I have an idea, Mrs. Lee said, as she took off her jade bracelet. It was the only piece of jewelry she owned. It was a wedding gift from her mother. I have a cousin who's into cricket fighting. I will give him this and seek his advice. But dear wife, I don't want you to give away your mother's gift. Dear husband, you cannot afford to lose your job. It's important for you to keep your job. Otherwise, we will not be able to give our son good education and he will never amount to anything. This is for our son's future. Mr. Lee relented. Uh, the two of them went to Mrs. Lee's cousin, who agreed to help. So Mr. Lee and the cousin went into the woods nearby and caught several crickets. They kept the biggest one, about one and a quarter inches long, and named it Blue Wing. The cousin taught Mr. Lee what to feed and how to train the cricket. Mr. Lee kept Blue Wing in a little clay pot and fed it bits of crab meat, uh, water chestnuts, and sliced apples. Crouch like a tiger. Listen for your enemy, he would instruct, trying to teach the cricket how to stalk its opponent. Or he would say, charge like the wind. Forge straight ahead. His seven-year-old son, Jin, watched closely by. Well, a dozen days passed quickly, and Mr. Lee had done everything he could to prepare Blue Wing for the battle. Now he just had to hope for the best. But two days before the scheduled match, Something terrible happened. You see, the boy, the seven-year-old Jin, who had grown quite fond of Blue Wing, wanted to look at it while his parents were out. So he reached up for the clay pot and he opened the lid. Suddenly, the cricket jumped out trying to escape. In his haste to catch the cricket, the boy accidentally squashed it. Now Blue Wing was dead. <laughs> Look what you've done! His mother came home and screamed. Your father is going to kill you! The boy burst into tears and ran out of the house. When Mr. Lee came home from office that evening and heard what had happened, he was devastated. But his anger quickly turned into fear and worry because they realized their son was missing. They had no idea where the boy was, and it was already dark outside. As Mrs. Lee went all over the village searching for the boy, uh, 
Mr. Lee went into the woods nearby. He came to the edge of a steep rock cliff and peered down. By the light of his lantern, he found his boy lying unconscious at the bottom of the cliff. He scrambled down and carried the boy home as his wife went to fetch the village doctor. Your son must have hit his head very badly uh, while uh, when he fell off the cliff. Will he live? Please don't let him die. I cannot say. Just do not move him, whatever you do. Just then, they heard a strong chirping sound of a cricket. It was coming from the boy's clenched hand. They loosened the boy's fist and found a small cricket, barely an inch long. The cricket sat still and sang. Mr. Lee noticed that it had golden eyes. He must have fallen off the cliff trying to catch this cricket. I am so sorry, my dear husband. It's all my fault. I should not have yelled at him like that. No, my dear wife, it's my fault. I'm the one who brought this mess onto us. The boy was still unconscious the next evening, and the parents were worried sick. The match was scheduled the next day, and they did not even have a cricket. How would they pay for their son's medical care if uh, Mr. Lee lost his job? Then Mr. Lee saw it again, the little cricket with golden eye. He was sitting on his son's chest. He carefully caught it and put it in the clay pot. The cricket chirped even more loudly as if trying to cheer him up. I will face my opponent tomorrow, Mr. Lee muttered quietly. He named the cricket Golden Eye and brought him to Mr. Bao's house the next day. All their colleagues and neighbors had gathered to watch. Mr. Bao set up a large flat-bottomed ceramic dish on his porch for the battle arena. He, in a revered manner, he let his big cricket out of the bamboo cage. Then he took a look at Mr. Lee's cricket and burst out laughing. Ha, 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 that puny thing is going to fight my cricket? You're out of your mind, Lee. Mr. Lee said nothing. The two crickets faced each other. The big boss scuttled around. Golden Eye sat still without moving an antenna. Look, he's so scared, Mr. Bao taunted and poked Golden Eye with a piece of straw. Suddenly, Golden Eye charged like the wind. The two crickets locked their antennae. Big Boss tried to come on top. Then Golden Eye flipped Big Boss clear across the arena. Big Boss tried to run away. And Golden Eye chirped loudly as if announcing his own victory. Golden Eye wins! He's amazing! Everybody cheered. Mr. Lee could not believe his eyes. Mr. Bao quickly recovered his cricket, his face red in anger and humiliation. But just then, everyone saw fluttering of black and white wings. A neighbor's rooster had come up onto the porch and tried to peck at Golden Eye. No! Stop! Mr. Lee screamed. Let him eat it! Mr. Bao taunted. But before either could them move, of them could, could move, Golden Eye jumped out of the ceramic dish. The rooster quickly caught up with it and trying to stomp on the cricket. Then the next thing people saw was the rooster shaking his own head violently. Quicker than lightning, Golden Eye had leaped up onto the rooster's comb and was biting it hard. Finally, Mr. Lee caught hold of the rooster and carefully recovered Golden Eye, and he put him back into the clay pot. Everyone applauded. Everyone except Mr. Bao. 
You're fired anyway, Lee, he hissed. You don't need to fire me. I quit, Mr. Lee said calmly. I should be at least as brave as my cricket. But when he got home, he was saddened to find that his boy was still in a coma. My dear wife, Mr. Lee said, please allow me to leave our son in your care for a while. I will find a way to make it right by him. The next day, Mr. Lee went to the village magistrate to file a grievance against Mr. Bao. Then he asked the magistrate for help. The story of Cricket fighting the rooster had spread quickly and had reached the magistrate's ears. I am going to introduce you to an old friend of mine, the magistrate said. He is a high court judge in Peking, and he loves cricket fighting. So Mr. Lee, with golden eye, traveled to the capital city to meet the judge. The judge was thrilled to see him. I am in charge of the Imperial Cricket Fighting Tournament, and I surely could use your service. The judge not only bought GoldenEye for a large sum of money, but also hired Mr. Lee as the Imperial Cricket Trainer. For, so for the next three months, Mr. Lee lived in the capital city of Pekin and trained GoldenEye, only occasionally receiving words from home about his son, who was still alive, but still in a coma. Golden Eye proved to be an, a magnificent fighter. In front of the emperor and the nobles, he fought and won every match for the total of 888 matches. His name became famous throughout the capital city and paintings and music and poetry were created as a tribute to the little champion cricket. Finally, the emperor allowed Golden Eye to retire in high honor. He was given to the emperor's daughter, who would take good care of him and enjoy his singing. Do you wish to stay here and train other crickets? The emperor asked Mr. Lee. Your majesty, I wish to go home and take care of my own son. The emperor released uh, Mr. Lee from his duty as the imperial cricket trainer and appointed him to be the chief commissioner of the local government back home. When he came home, everybody welcomed him back. And guess who was assigned to organize a magnificent banquet for Mr. Lee? That's right. Mr. Bao. <laughs> but when Mr. Lee finally came back to his house, his wife came running out saying, he's awake, he's awake, our son is awake. You see, just two days before, Jin had regained consciousness and the whole family embraced one another. I am so glad you are all right, son. Dad, I was asleep for a long time, and I had a very strange dream. What kind of dream did you have, son? In my dream, I was a fighting cricket. I was small but quick, and I won many, many battles. I even fought a rooster once. I crouched like a tiger and charged like the wind, just like you said. And Dad, you were always there with me. Motoko with a happy ending to a tale about a boy as a cricket who helps save the day in ancient China. A pleasure to listen to that story along with our terrific studio audience. And that's an important thing we might notice in our stories today, how these stories about animals and humans actually become kind of a space for us to contemplate our relationships with one another, our parents, our friends, the people we work with and work for. And sometimes, after all we can do, we find out we very much need the help of those around us, our parents or our partners, our siblings and friends, our children, even a tiny cricket. 
There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. Up next, we're going to spend a moment around the desk with a little talk back about Motoko's cricket story. I'm Sam Payne. moment ago, it was our pleasure to hear, along with our terrific studio audience in the Appleseed Performance Studio, a story told by Motoko, the golden eye of the fighting cricket. And to talk a little bit about that story, I'm pleased to be joined around the desk by Dr. Brian Tanner and Dr. Heather Bigley, our producers on the Appleseed. Guys, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. I feel like I should genuflect when you use my title. Some way, I should. (laughs) So, Brian, where does this story take you as you hear it? Well, this reminded me of another story that I love about um, a person that has a a bond with an animal and they train together. (laughs) It's a book that I read to my daughter recently called Babe the Gallant Pig. Uh, It's by (laughs) Dick King Smith. Um, It was made into a famous movie in 1995 called Babe. Sure, with James Cromwell. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. the whole that'll do pig thing. (laughs) Um, But I just love stories like that where it's like uh, there's just, even though they're different species and they they, they, – communicate differently, there's something special between them. And they're yeah. working towards like a bigger goal. In in this case, it's a competition, you know, normally for sheepdogs, but the, yeah. the the pig is going to try and herd sheep just like the like the dogs. And it has its <laughs> own unconventional way that it goes about doing that. And yeah. it ends up um, you know, kind of saving the day for this family. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's a really important aspect of both the stories is that the family's life revolves around work and the work is important. And often when we think about uh, family life, we say, oh, that vacation I took or the road trip or the zoo trip. And those are all great memories. But I think some of us really don't value how important doing work together mm-hmm. is for family life. And in this story from Motoko, we have a family who has to save its save itself and everyone must contribute. Mm-hmm. And it's not just one hero that, you know, saves the day, but every single member of the family has to help. What a pleasure to chat for just a moment about the golden eye of the fighting cricket, that story told for us by Motoko. And speaking of stories about animals and our relationships with them, I've got a memory. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My wife and I and our daughter have never been pet owners. Not really. Actually, I guess that's not true. Fish. We have fish. But we've always loved cats and dogs. And we've often been, shall we say, pet adjacent. Our grown-up son has a beloved dog who is often at the house. And his longtime girlfriend has a cat we all love. So we're pet lovers, to be sure. We've just, well, we've just kind of kept our distance. And then everything changed. And it changed on the day that a bedraggled-looking tortoiseshell cat wandered out of the shrubs around our house, and we gave her a little plate of leftovers. That cat, as it turned out, was pregnant. Who knew? And not too many days after we began putting a little food out for her, she had a litter of kittens. And our lives have been spent from that time to this, learning how to responsibly manage a little colony of feral cats. And to be sure, it's not all kitty snuggles and purring and the like. In fact, though these cats love, love, love living in our backyard or seem to, they won't come near us, not for anything. And to figure out how to do right by these cats, we've consulted books and vets and animal shelters and the Humane Society. And there's been the renting of live traps and there have been spayings and neuterings and rabies shots. And, well, let's just say that we're more a part of each other's lives than any of us, either the humans or the cats, ever imagined. And I have to say that in the beginning, in our ignorance about cats, we heaped a lot of judgment on that mother cat. It may have started with an experience we'll probably never, ever forget, right after the littlest cats were born. 
Now, to be sure, the mother cat kept that litter of newborns far away from where we could find it. But one chilly afternoon, we heard this piercing little cry from among the flowers on the south side of the house. We investigated and found a tiny kitten, probably just a few days old. We didn't touch it at first. We knew that its mother was probably just moving her kittens to a place that was safer or warmer or better hidden. But as time wore on and the mother cat didn't come back, we started to wonder, and we got the vet on the phone. And when we were sure that the kitten had, in fact, been abandoned by its mother, we consulted with the vet about how to take care of a tiny abandoned kitten like this. And almost before we knew what was happening, we were at the pet store buying kitten formula and a tiny bottle that looked like it had been made for a doll and warming lights and heating pads. And we were waking up for 2 a.m. feedings and 4 a.m. feedings. We really poured our hearts into the project of keeping this tiny kitten alive. And I have to say that there was a part of us, and I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but there was this part of us that began to feel disdainful of the mothering of the mother cat, that mother cat that had left the kitten among the flowers. And that part of us began to say things like, we will be good parents, and even we'll be better parents than you, mother cat. Well, I even had a dream one night in which the kittens could talk, and they told us that they wanted to hang out with us more, but their mean mom wouldn't let them. In my dream, the kittens had a name for their mom. They called her The Claw. So, wouldn't you know it, in real life, we started calling her that, The Claw. And then, the kitten, that little abandoned kitten that we were taking care of so well, didn't make it. I was holding it in my hands in the middle of the night, working to get it to take a little formula when it took its last breath. Everyone in the house knew when it had happened. It was my turn for that particular nighttime feeding. Everyone else was supposed to be asleep. That's why we took turns, but no one was asleep. Everyone was awake, worrying and wondering. And then the kitten simply wasn't alive anymore. And it just broke us in half, in sorrow, we buried the tiny kitten in the backyard, and we tried to go about our lives again. In a moment like that, you think things will never get back to normal. But they do. Things do get back to normal. It just takes a while. But long before things got back to normal at our house, while we were still smarting from losing the kitten, my wife found herself in the backyard on an afternoon, and there, resting on its haunches, looking steadily at her, was the claw it's hard to read a cat. You know, their faces are... You can look at a cat's face and you can imagine it thinking just about anything you want. But my wife thought the claw seemed unimaginably sad. And they had a long, silent moment together, my wife and the claw, just looking at one another. Two mothers sorrowing together over a loss. It went on for a while. And when my wife came back in the house, she said, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong to look down our noses at the motherhood of the claw. Wrong to assume so quickly that she was a bad parent and that we might make good ones. We were so arrogant about the idea that we'd do better. But we didn't. We all failed. And it's got to be tough all around. And she was right, my wife was. It was a powerful moment. I have imagined it again and again. And my imagination is such that I can get to a kind of fantastical place, a place in which my wife, even though she doesn't speak the language, says to the claw, I know you did the best you could, and I honor that. And then the claw, even though she doesn't speak the language, says, I know you guys did the best you could too, and I honor that. Well, for sure, as time has passed, we're not as disdainful of the motherhood of the claw as we used to be. The remaining kittens are grown now, bigger than she is, some of them. 
and they're still not socialized. They won't come near us. The claw has kept her kittens far away from us, taught them carefully to eat our food, but to otherwise fear and avoid us. And that still bugs us, and we tell them so, even as we're carefully leaving food out for them, or even trying to catch one of them to take into the vet for a rabies shot or something else. They seem fantastically happy, and we probably have a lot to do with that, but not to their way of seeing things. As you can imagine, they attribute their general well-being to the influence of that little bedraggled tortoiseshell cat. They came wandering out of the shrubs just a few days before they were born. Their mom, the claw. Well, there's nothing in what I'm trying to say about looking at the way cats raise their kittens as a model for how we ought to raise our children. I'm not saying anything like that. And I don't understand the calculus of what might make a mother cat abandon a kitten. There are reasons Let's maybe leave it at that. But maybe all I'm saying is that I don't know what it's like to be a cat. And the claw and her brood don't know what it's like to be human beings. And that maybe even that creatures who are very different from one another can, I don't know, share the backyard without looking down their noses at one another, even during difficult times. Maybe this story, like... Animal stories tend to be when they're fables is really a story about people. Maybe when I meet a person I don't understand whose challenges and difficulties in a wild world are somehow tough for me to grasp, I'll think of the claw. And maybe that will help me treat people just a little more honorably. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. An animal story spring to mind? Well, open your mouth and share. It's been a pleasure for me to share the desk here with Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley, our producers. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. That'll do, pig. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was great. There's a lot more coming up in just a moment. Uh, an audio drama called The Crystal Whale about a submarine and its unlikely relationship with a critter at the bottom of the sea. Coming up, I'm Sam Bain. Welcome to the Appleseed Studio in an hour that has already included a tale about backyard cats and one about the golden eye of the fighting cricket. That story shared with us by Motoko Live in the Appleseed Performance Studio. It's now time for a little audio drama adventure, an undersea adventure to boot. And uh, I'm pleased to be joined uh, around the desk here by some of the folks who have brought that to life. We're talking to Daniel and Garen. And guys, uh, tell us a little bit about the crystal whale. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Man, first, just we're glad to be here, Sam. This is fun. Um, We're usually behind a computer and just messing with faders. So this is great. The crystal whale, though. Daniel, what do do you want to say about crystal whales? Oh, man. Well, first of all, it was a challenge. I mean, (laughs) we're going to see this creature that in many ways uh, resembles light. It's got this flashing light element. And from a sound designer perspective, you got to think, how do I design the sound of light? What does light sound like? (laughs) And not only that, but what does the sound of light underwater sound like? Mm, Right? I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I think just the dynamics of these characters, you you just kind of have such different people working together and trying to overcome this this struggle of being underwater at, at the <laughs> bottom of the sea and this creature that's uh, chasing you that I mean I'd be scared to death right yeah and, yeah. and how they work together to to get get free and that brings them together which is really really cool 
but it's time to hear it now. The crystal whale cooked up in what I keep calling our secret lab <laughs> <laughs> by Daniel and Garen and and uh, and their specialized crew. Right? Uh, here it is on the apple seed. Howard, do you read? Over. Miss Howard, this is Crystal Whale Helm. Can you hear me? Over. Howie, this is Tell. Can you hear me? Are you out there? Over. It's dark as a, a tomb in here. Are you sure you're even pressing the right buttons, Tell? I'm pressing the right buttons, sir. I'm not sure the comms work, though, with the power down, but I'm... I'm pressing the right buttons. When was the last we heard anything? Twelve minutes and sixteen seconds past critical, sir. Howie, can you give us anything? Anything at all? Over? Is it possible that she's still alive? There's no reason to go there yet, sir. Just because we can't see her through the windows. Oh, submarine covered in windows? What kind of experimental Mickey Mouse sightseeing boat is... She's probably fine. But it was an experimental suit. Untried. And now 12 minutes and 16 seconds past critical. 12 minutes and 35 seconds, sir. Yes, but clearly that time has been far more eventful for us than for her. She's got plenty of oxygen. The suit, which is incredible, is rated for depths three times where she's swimming. And the thrusters on the suit are rated for twice the test speed. So are the suit's comms. But we haven't heard from her in almost 14 minutes, Sandy. I mean... The whole suit test was supposed to be shorter than that. I know. I know. The point is, the speed shouldn't have strained the suit at all. The prototypes were all able to handle these conditions. And she handled the launch like a pro. You saw her. Well, as well as the sub-handle getting into position to catch her? Enough with that, please. We got jumpy. The suit is fast. That's how I designed it. And for us, the race from the jump-off to the pickup, we just got jumpy. You got jumpy. Right. I got jumpy. And you shouted a navigation order, which Tell obeyed, and now we've grounded the crystal whale at the bottom of a thousand feet of ocean. Just look out the windows and see. It's too dark to see. Yes, you're right. Grounded. A thousand feet of ocean, which is why... Which is why she's safer out there. Miss Howard. Miss Howard, over. Tell. Let me take over for a minute. Of course, Sandy. Howie? Howie? Kit Howard, you answer me this. Listen. Baby, this is your mom. The last 12 or 13 minutes have been pretty rough. Mickey! Lights? Engines? Anything? Nothing! McGee, can't you... I'm working on it, Captain. I mentioned I'm working by flashlight in here. We're all working by flashlight, McGee. Sandy. We clipped a ridge while we were getting into position to catch you, and we rolled the sub. It's... it's my fault. We're on the bottom. We don't have any power. I know you're only 15, but you're the best test pilot in the whole operation. Sweetie, I know you're fine. We don't know why you can't communicate with us, but I just wanted you to know we're... Captain Mauer! What is it, Till? Out there, beyond that ridge! A flash of light. Sandy, look at this. A flash of light? What on earth? Don't even ask! I don't even know! But we're dead again. As a doornail. Captain, that light. Yeah, what about it? It's gone. Sandy, look at the comm screen. Words. Tell, it's just ghosting from whatever was on the screen when the engine spiked. No, Sandy, that's a new message. Sandy, he's right. Look, coming fast, voice calm down, something behind. That's, that's it. That's it. Oh my, Howie, where is she? Captain, that light again. It's blinding. What the... How did that... Uh, oh, never mind. That light. What is that? Sean, it's Captain. Is anyone there? I found you. I'm hot and hot. I'm almost to the crystal whale. Howie. Howie. Spray the hatch. I can't slow down. There's something big behind. What is that thing? It's enormous. Some kind of creature? Whoa. Hmm. Anyone 
know what this is? I've never seen. It looked like it was on fire. Bright as the sun. But it's just faintly glowing now. It's enormous. Use the whole ship. We're down again. Nothing. No power. No engines. Nothing. The hatch. Howie. Is everybody okay? What's wrong with Howie? Yeah, it took me a while to find you at the bottom of, well, you know, the bottom of the ocean. Mom, the suit is super fast. Yeah, that's how I designed it. What do you think it wants? Wants? We still don't even know what it is. At least I don't know what it is. Sandy? Do you know what it is? I've never seen anything like it in my life. Mom, it's incredible. Was it behind you during the whole test? Just about. It came out of nowhere. I felt like a fishing lure. But I was running away from it. I never got a good look at it. But now... It's incredible. Listen, guys, I also think it's incredible, but I've got some questions. There's some stuff about this that I don't understand. You and me both tell. I mean, think about it. It comes screaming toward us like it's going to rip us apart or eat us or something, and now it's here. It's just... Staring at us. Yeah. And I might add, we're just staring back. Anyone want to talk about the problems? I mean, we're still completely dark. No engines, no lights, no nothing. But we had engines and lights a minute ago. Why did they power on suddenly and then off again? The comms too. We couldn't talk to Howie at all and then suddenly we could and now everything's dead again. If I knew the answer to that. The creature outside, whatever it is, seems to have plenty of juice. See it softly glowing? I wish we could get a little of whatever's making that thing go. Wait a minute, Captain Mauer. What? What did I say? Listen, the crash killed the power. It, it killed the engines, too. That's fact A. We couldn't do anything, and we couldn't get the comms working. We couldn't communicate with Howie. Okay. That's fact A. Is there a fact B? Yeah, there is. While we were trying to find Howie, we could see this thing in the distance. Before it came rushing up to us, we could see it out there, lit up. Like the sun, you said. Yeah, like the sun. I've never seen anything so bright. Well, that's fact B. There better be a fact C in here. I think there is, Tell. When the engines and lights were going crazy in here, this guy, whoever he is, was shining bright as the sun out there. Am I remembering that right? Go on. And when our friend here stopped shining, the crystal whale shut down again. Isn't that right, McGee? All I know is that we're shut down now. I gotta get this stuff going again, or we're gonna be in a real fix. Come on, McGee. Try to remember. You know, I think you're right. And it happened again when we heard Howie through the comms. As the fish, or whatever it is, got bright, we had power in here. Are you saying that whatever it is out there jump-started us in here? That's exactly what I'm saying, Captain Mauer. I don't get it, but I think that's what's happening. Wow. Wow! Well, let's give it a test. How do we turn on those big fishy batteries? I don't know. I have no idea. And why is it just staring at us? I mean, if it was hostile, if it wanted to destroy us, it could just drag us around the ocean floor or, I don't know, stomp on us or something. It's big enough. It doesn't want to destroy us. What? Howie? Did you say something? It doesn't want to destroy us. How do you know that? It was chasing me because it was hungry. That's what I think. That's how it got here. But that's not what it wants now. Go on, Howie. Let me put it this way. Mom, do you remember in the lab when Dr. Warner's middle school kid Charlie came to observe like a month ago? I remember. And I remember Charlie spent the whole time staring at you. I've never seen such a crush. And you were oblivious. Not entirely oblivious. I remember, for example, how a kid looks at a girl when he Twitter pated? You think that they Wait a minute. Are you saying that creature out there is in love with us? Well, not with us, exactly. With the sub. It's in love with the crystal whale. Wow. Wow! No time to talk any further about that. Look, something's happening. It's getting brighter. I don't like the look of this. Man, my eyes. It's like looking into the sun. I've got everything. Everything. Tell, get us out of here now. Yes, sir. Everyone, hang on to something. We're moving. We sure are. And it's coming along. Man, that's 
really in love. Maybe it'll lose interest. Mom, how long did Charlie Warner follow me around the lab? Are you kidding me? He'd still be following you around the lab if Dr. Warner hadn't dragged him out to a Taekwondo class. Get us out of here, Tell. On it. So that was some ride. I saw every engine I've ever worked on flash before my eyes. Did I hear you give an order back there, Sandy? An order on my ship? I. You. I guess you did, Captain Mauer. It saved all our lives. Where's the sub? Where's the crystal whale? There it was, at 200 yards. That sub was something. The creature was something. And, uh, Miss Howard, you're a remarkable young person. Um, thanks, sir. Wait till the guys at your school hear about this. The guys? Let's not even think about guys after this. Not even Charlie Warner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Swim. I don't get it. 
Who's Charlie Warner? The Crystal Whale, an original audio drama cooked up in our secret lab by Daniel and Garen and uh, and their specialized crew. Uh, Daniel and Garen, of course, are in the studio with us right now, and uh, that's quite a ride, guys. It, that was that was a ride. That was some ride. <laughs> when you're working on a big project together, it is there is uh, something kind of Leviathan-y about it. You know, oh, it absolutely. Kind of, it tends to sort of have a mind of its own and. You uh, as a as a dedicated crew are trying to find your way through it and learn about the power dynamics in your group. It's like that just about anywhere in a family. It's like that mm. and the things that families have to face together, things that are unexpected and unpredictable. Oh, hundred percent. Well, and it just reminds me, you know, it takes a village, right? Yeah. You know, this leviathan of a project. It needs a lot of hands on deck, and you get enough of those somebody's in a room, and all of a sudden you've got a crew, right? Mm. Yeah. So. Oh, and somebody's wow. saying, I'm the captain here. <laughs> <laughs> the parallels between what the crew of the Crystal Whale faces and uh, what the crew creating the Crystal Whale for <laughs> the audio drama face as they as they enter into that challenge. It's been such a pleasure to talk to Daniel and Garen. I've 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 mentioned them by their first names. We're talking, of course, to Daniel Davis and Garen Brett. It's a it's a pleasure to have you both with me. Thank you so much, oh, Sam. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. We've been thinking today about the surprises of the natural world and how those surprises teach us about our own lives, our own selves, our own relationships. All of us have wanted to be brave and strong even when we feel like we're only the size of a cricket. All of us have seen the answer to a problem even if we're not necessarily the one in charge. And these stories help us understand that we're not alone. We're not the only ones who felt this way. In fact, these are experiences that make us human. Interesting, right? We share stories of animals to teach us about our humanity. You think animals share stories of humans to understand their best beastly selves? I'm suddenly wondering. It's been such a pleasure for me to share this hour with you. Join us again on the Appleseed, won't you? You can find us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Or you can Google the Appleseed Podcast, or you can download the BYU Radio app for ways to listen to all the great shows produced by BYU Radio. And of course, if you found us on the podcast, be sure to rate us and review us. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.